Hello there and welcome to Romance at a Glance. I am your host, Bridget. With me as always is my co-host, Shawnee, although she's not actually here because we were so stoked after interviewing Julia Quinn, we actually forgot to do this intro. So I'm here by my lonesome, doing it real quick to give you the update. You guys, Julia Quinn was an absolute treasure. We talked about books that were her favorites early on, how her reading journey has continued, what she's been doing during quarantine. She gives us some great TV recommendations. We talked all about her books, the journey, the journey of going from book to film, or in this case, Netflix screen and the Bridgerton's journey. And we had such a blast talking to her that we ended up talking to her for well over an hour. She was so generous with her time and we can't even believe it. So we ended up having to cut out some great pieces. So this interview wouldn't be too long. So you can find those on patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance. If you become one of our patrons, you can catch awesome behind the scenes, very funny stories of me and Shawnee's life. All of our, of course, intense opinions, more book reviews, extra author interview clips, and all kinds of goodies. So make sure you guys head over to patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance if you would like to get some more Julia Quinn awesomeness. Without further ado, you guys, let's get it poppin'. It's time for Julia Quinn. Romance at a glance. Uh Uh-huh. Romance at a glance. What'd you say Romance at a glance. Go ahead, girl. Well, hello, Julia. Thank you so much for being here. Honestly, this is the biggest honor. We have been dancing around the kitchen doing Instagram videos all morning. <laughs> I'm Bridget. This is my co-host, Shani. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm a longtime reader, first-time interviewer. <laughs> I am actually a newbie reader to historical. So Shani has been giving me the historical journey this season on the podcast, um, and I'm loving it. We did Duke and I, and I hopped through the Bridgetons real fast real fast really fast i've been reading historical is my genre so i've been reading that since i was i don't know 14 15 uh years old so a long time Um, but we have so many questions for you uh so we're gonna just jump right in and like let's just get it popping okay (laughs) i I, i'm 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 stealing myself and i'm ready (laughs) right i'm actually really curious as to what people were reading when they were younger right so like what got you into reading What were the first books you're reading whenever you really started to dive into reading? I was what they called a walker, which meant I lived too close to school to ride the school bus, which really bugged me, not because I minded walking, but because I thought the school bus seemed really fun and cool. But uh, the good part for me was that the public library was directly on the way home between my house and school. And so I would stop at the public library several times a week. And so I was a big, big reader. And I can remember... The earliest series I remember binging was B is for Betsy by Carolyn Haywood. You guys might be too young to know B is for Betsy, um, but I loved B is for Betsy. And then as I got older, I went through all of the Victoria Holt books. So Victoria Holt would do these gothic novels, you know, like, um, oh, I'm blanking on the names of any of them right now. Um, The Devil Something, The Bride of Pandoric, things like that. And so in addition to Victoria Holt, she also had, she wrote other books as Jean Pleity, which were more historical fiction, where she would still have that element of this sort of gothic romanciness, but using real historical figures. And then she also had Philippa Carr, which was this Daughters of England series, which I actually went and collected on eBay many years ago because I just, they, they hold such a dear place to my heart. And those would be, you know, it started with, I think a book called the miracle at St. Bruno's, 
you know, it was the story, I think, in maybe like the 1300s, 1400s. I don't even remember anything other than the title now. But then the next book would be about that heroine's daughter. Okay. And then the next book would be about that heroine's daughter. And she went all the way to like World War One. Although I think when I was reading them, she hadn't gotten that far yet. I remember, oh yeah, one of those was called The Witch from the Sea. I remember that one a lot. Anyway, so I totally love those. And I would go to the library and I can still see like the room where those books were held. It was like on the lower level. And I would basically just get as many books as I could carry. So I was a big, big reader. Um, the funny thing is, is that I went back, I got, I was asked to speak at that public library, which was so fun for me. Um, although it was, it was a little hard because they had remodeled and it was like really beautiful now, but like, like, this is wrong. The kids books <laughs> should be over here. And, and wh- why are, why, why are my Victoria whole books not over there? But that was really special, um, to go back and speak at my old public library that I went to so many times growing up. That's really, really awesome. I think it's so interesting that those are the books you were reading because then you went on to write historical romance and how fundamental the books that we latch onto and love as children become, you know, as we grow in genres. Because when I was little, I was crushing Nancy Drew. I mean, I would just, every Nancy Drew book, I still have them in a case in my basement waiting for my daughter to get old enough to read too. Like, loved all the fantasy. I was going through all the like, Mercedes Lackey and McCaffrey. I was hitting all the dragon shelves, all the fantasy shelves. And now, you know, my favorite genres now are still, you know, fantasy, sci-fi and sort of like action suspense, you know, sort of romance. And I think it's so cool that even as a kid, you were like loving the historical things that were happening in the past. That's so fun. Mm -hmm. Although I did, I did really like the Bobsy twins when I was younger too. Although that may just be because my sister, my older sister collected Nancy Drew. And so I needed something to collect that wasn't what she was doing because (laughs) she was bigger than I was. And so I couldn't collect the same thing that would not have worked that, that would, that would have severely impacted my safety if I tried to collect. That would have been a a war for sure. Oh, you're trying to have what I have? No, we're not. Yeah, we're not doing that. So my, you know, whenever we would visit our grandparents, they would give us $10 each. And the Nancy Drew and Bobsy twin books cost $2 each. And so the minute we would get back home, we would make my mother stop at Caldor's on the way home. So Caldor's was like this local chain of discount department stores, you know, not fancy, but they had a book section. And so that's where they would have them. And so we would go and be like, mom, we have to stop at Caldor's on the way home. And um, we would go and we would each get five books and my mom would cover the tax because we did not have enough money for the tax, which I think was probably 75 cents each for the whole thing. And so we would each buy five books with our grandparent money every single time. That's just, that's what we did. That's amazing. That's awesome. It's funny though, you guys, that you both just said like, you can't collect the same books as your sibling. And my oldest sister, um, Asia, she it was such a ferocious like reader that any book that I, that came to me came through her. Like, it was just like this trickle down. We, we're I'm one of a lot of children, by the way. Um, but it was a trickle down. She got the books and then she would either, she would give them to us or she would read them to us. So like at night she would like read us chapters of books. So there was kind of like no um, fighting over books. It was just kind of like, what are you getting next? Because if she got it, then I was getting it, you know? <laughs> oh, well, we could read each other's books, but I mean, like I couldn't, if I was collecting her books, that would not be cool because <laughs> then I would be 
Yeah, that's a different yeah. thing. But there's like a sharing thing versus an ownership thing. The, yeah. the sharing was okay. We we share, but you had to have your own stuff. Yeah. I feel like yeah. I feel like when there's when you are in a big household like that, there they were like I don't remember having ownership of anything. <laughs> period. Like if it was a book, it went in the shelf. Nobody could actually own a thing. So you guys are telling you're you're telling me my dream life. I'm like I wish I was like an only child or one of two, a boy and a girl. Woo. <laughs> How many siblings do you have, Julia? I have, um, well, I grew up with two sisters. I'm the middle. And then I also have a half brother and half sister who are quite a bit younger. Nice. We're all, um, mid- we're all middles. Oh yeah. Like, boy, we have overcome. Can I just tell you? We have. Just go middle. Yeah. We, we support everyone. I'm the baby. You're the baby, Bridget? I thought you were the middle. No, I'm the baby. Well, I'm the baby of... I have two sort of siblings. So I'm the oh, baby okay. of my original siblings. And then I'm the oldest of the steps. So I got the best of both worlds. I got to be the baby and I got to be in charge. <laughs> so I I got mm-hmm. I, I really got a good deal on I my think you can't be in our clip. <laughs> I can't be no, in your clip. In the clip. Sure. I thought you were a middle. You you uh you miss no. uh you misinformed me. <laughs> look at this look at this cherubic face. This is the face of a baby. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're right, you're right. What um so those are your first books. What was the first romance that you started reading or the first like type of romance that they started reading? I'm not entirely sure, but um, continuing this, this saga of living within walking distance, there was also a used bookstore that was within walking distance. And I remember going there and getting romances. And I, I remember somehow I stumbled upon those signet Regency romances. So I read some of those. So I got into that. I think, actually, I think I got hooked on romances through my grandmother's good housekeeping magazines because they would, um, they would have abridged romances that they would, they would run. And I'm pretty sure they had like Kathleen Woodowis in there. I can't remember what else. And like the first few pages were on like a different type of paper. Like it was like a, a, like a colored paper and it wasn't the glossy and it had it like maybe an illustration. And so you'd read like the first three or four pages on that. And then it'd be like continued on page 196 and then you'd flip ahead and then it'd be like much smaller writing, whatever you could finish. Um, and so I think that's what sucked me in to begin with. Um, I want to say there's like a Danielle Steele, like, and, and like not all her books are like romance, they all have romance in them and not, but like, I'm pretty sure it was something that actually was pretty romancy. So I think that's what hooked me. That's what got me. I, I found a Daniel Steele in my middle school library, which it should, should not have been there. Like looking back, I'm like, this book should not have been in my middle school library, but, but I used to like hide in there from like bullies. And so I would just read everything, like every lunch, just be in books. And it was a Daniel Steele I found that I was like, Ooh, I'm a prepubescent uh, individual and this gives me the feels like what's happening. <laughs> so that's, that was like, I think one of the first times that I was like, Whoa. And then I went to my library and I just started going through all the shelves of everything I could possibly get my hands on all those really dramatic covers with the, the guy with his ripped shirt. And um, Bridget, Bridget likes to call me a heathen or slash like Satan because I used to, um, because my house was very strict. So I would go through the books in the library and find the sex pages and then I would pull them out and take them with me. <laughs> she would steal them. Wait, she you were just- tried- she was defacing public library property and stealing Ooh. books. Look at her face. Everybody Ooh. can't see Julia. She is gasping like she is in 
Macaulay Culkin right now, you guys. You guys, this- you might need to, well, I would say I'd let you take a screenshot, except I'm like hair unbrushed, no makeup or anything. But like, I can't believe you were purposely destroying library books. Ah. That is my literal reaction. When she told me, I was just like, I'm not sure we can be friends anymore. I don't we know. We might have to me. end this interview right now. <laughs> I would like you to know, I would like you to know that I got my karmic, my pay, payback because so, you know, obviously you steal all the dirty pages and whatever. And I had them in this book bag, <laughs> book bag hidden in my closet, which my parents found that oh, no. bag. Oh, and no. I got, I got the whole like, Hey, could you come into the room? And as I walk in, I see my book bag sitting on my mom's <laughs> bed. And I don't know any, any, any kid out there, especially one with Brown parents, you know, like super religious parents can just knows the feeling of seeing them like basically have your pornography on their bed. And you're just like, I will die today. Today is the day I die. <laughs> they may or may not find my body. <laughs> my mom was actually a school nurse. So we were very open about everything. And, and, and yeah. yeah, well, yeah I got, <laughs> my mom was also, and we got, I actually read my first romances because her and my sister were reading like Suzanne Brockman. And uh, my sister gave me, you know, my first Black Dagger Brotherhood book. And I was like, vampires they're biting people (laughs) (laughs) and I have never looked back just went just crushed through all the shelves I could find what are you reading right now nothing believe it or not um I am full in on election stuff Mm. Uh, I have been writing postcards and I'm now text banking and so that's really all of my um spare time and while I do that I watch like Netflix and stuff. So I've been more of a viewer than a reader in the past month or so um, because I can't read and do my election stuff at the same time. So um, I've been watching Bones, which I had never seen. I love Bones. I love Bones. Well, and so that was the recommendation of Eloisa James, who said she tore through all, what, 12 seasons? And she's like, it's basically one really long romance novel. And it mm-hmm. totally is. And it so is. I'm enjoying that. But I also like all the forensic stuff, too. So that's fun. Do you like, are you are you more of a um, Hodgins fan of like an Angela? Or what season are you on? Who's your, who's your, who's the one who gives you the glee? Cause I, there's so many good characters in that show. I'm in season four right now. I won't spoil anything. It's yeah, just a good show. Anything. I won't yeah. spoil anything. It's, I like all it, the characters. I like Bones. I like all the characters. Yeah. The care, like, I think they, I don't remember if, I don't think I actually watched the last two seasons. Um, Cause they're, like you said, they were like 12. Um, but me and my best friend in college, everyone would be like, hang out with us. And we're like, excuse me, it's Wednesday. Bones is on. And we would like co- get together and we'd be well, like, and we can that's, talk to you to watch Bones. Yeah. That's, that's the cause of my COVID bangs is that I liked Camille's bangs so much. I was oh. like, maybe I'll try doing bangs like Camille because I think she's absolutely gorgeous. And I was oh, like, so beautiful. she's so pretty, but my hair is not straight enough. And uh, no. anyway, no. No, no, she caused me to cut my own hair, which <laughs> what I simul- simultaneously was a mistake, and I don't really regret it because something had to be done. I feel like every five year old feels that way. Every five year old who gets a hold of the scissors and decides that like today's the day, I'm gonna see what this is, and they have that tuft of hair that's just up here like this. They know as soon as you like. You remember when you looked at your parent and your mom was like, "Did you cut your own hair?" And you were like, you're like, how does she know? But also I look fly with my peacock. <laughs> no, no. The, see, I would be the kid being like, she cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> I 
an older sister, so probably it was her. Um, anyway, so I've been watching I'm Bones. I also, I'm almost done with The 100, which I started years ago and I've been kind of slowly going through and I've only got a few episodes left. And then other things I have gone through during pandemic, I did all of Peaky Blinders. Love Peaky Blinders. So good. I did all of The Last Kingdom. I did, um, uh, as a family, we just finished the first season of Fargo, which we like. Oh, I finally finished Homeland, which I had, we'd done that a long time. We were waiting for the last season, which was excellent. Like some of the middle seasons weren't as good, but the last season, like I have to give them props for like ending as I think a seven season show perfectly. Like, you know, sometimes you get these season ending series endings and you're like, really, that's how you're wrapping it up. <laughs> Lost. Um, <Yeah. laughs> how, I, how I met your mother. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, Homeland. I was just like, oh, that was perfect. Um, what else? Uh, well, of course, I did, did the last season of Outlander. I just showed my husband the wedding scene. We were watching TV and we were I was like, you know what? We don't want to watch a whole movie right now. I was like, we're just going to cash pop in and watch this. So I was like explaining to him what was going on because he didn't watch the whole season. So we're just like watching. And I was like, and now this part is really good because see the way he's touching her neck? This is, (laughs) I'm telling you all the things that I would like you to do later. See how he's pushing her hair? (laughs) It was really fun. (laughs) The the thing about Outlander, it was one of the first books I read, you know, back in the day. And, um, and series, and I forgot like a lot of it. I remembered the really great parts, but I forgot like what that whole series looked mm-hmm. like. And so when I was watching it, when I got to like season two, I was like, oh my God. Like I, and I, I haven't watched past, I think I started season three maybe. And then I just stopped. I was like, this is so intense. I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> and I just go back. First of all, I just want to know how many times you, you rewound the wedding scene. Like how many times did you watch the wedding scene? Oh. More than once. Definitely more than one. <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, it was really well done. It was really well done. It was really well done. And I will tell you, so I can't I can't say a whole lot about Bridgerton the show, um, except that it's coming. Um, and it is not rated G. Woohoo! Yes! yes. Yes. Oh my let's open those yes, doors. Let us into <laughs> your life. <laughs> We decided we we read a couple closed door romances on the podcast, and we just Bridget and I were talking about like no more closed doors, none. We're not reading another book. With but a closed you know door. what's fascinating <laughs> is that when I read a closed door romance, it's occasionally sometimes it does actually really work for me. But you know, usually I'm, I'm like I wanted more. But I also have read romances where they've got some of these love scenes, and I'm just like, like I'm I'm like making like hand movements, like anybody in a podcast can see me. Um, where I'm just flipping the pages and not really reading it because it's just like I'm like boring. And so I yeah, it made me think as a writer, okay, what is that, you know, midpoint between this? Why do I sometimes why do I get disappointed by the opposite things? And I realized that I want that intimate connection in a book, but I need it to be more than just the physical motions. I need to feel like the characters, which I think is why in my books, which are not known for being particularly racy, I mean, on the romance novel scale of raciness. Um, but I feel like I have to keep the characters talking and interacting somehow. So you, um, or at least like in their thoughts more than just in their bodies, because I feel like it has to move something forward, um, so that you can feel their emotions and get like that sort of rush of, um, 
not just like the physical pleasure, but like the mental pleasure we get from flirting and the courtship mm-hmm. yeah, um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. One of the things we were talking yeah. about is that we don't like closed door because you're letting us into their minds and we get to experience that like tension before the first kiss. We get to experience that vulnerability of confessing you love someone and not knowing if they'll love you back. Like, and then in romance, like sex is such a vulnerable place. So in historicals, one of the things we've been talking about this season is that most of the heroines are virgins. And Mm -hmm. I was saying like, I would hate reading a closed door historical because like what a vulnerable place for her to be offering up this, this act that she, and most of them are not prepared. They did not have education about this. So they're like going off some very sketchy info about what might happen and not getting to be in that space with her. And then also for him, like he's realizing that she's trusting him and like, he's having to like really guide this whole thing and see what she's going to like. And like, I think when it's done well, it's such a lovely thing. I mean, it's obviously sexy, but it's, I think, so powerful the way they connect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think like in Outlander, the fact that uh, Jamie is the virgin is always just a, like a nice thing. Cause I rarely ever read a romance where the guy is entering as a virgin. And I was like, that, that happens too. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I just wrote my first one. Did you? Ah! First, well, no, first come scandal, which just came out. The guy is a virgin. I'm going to read this. He is. He, well, they both are, but yeah, he is. Yeah. And you know, I, yeah. I mean, this is no big spoiler or anything, but, you know, part of it was that he is a medical student. And so the the, the background is just like, you know, it's not, he wasn't like making some big statement, like I'm saving myself for marriage. It's just for whatever reason, he reached some point where it hadn't happened. And then he got far enough in his medical studies where he knew about syphilis and stuff like that. <laughs> so, I mean, he had like too much knowledge. He was like, no, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to the brothel. Are you kidding me? I know what this stuff he does. And so, um, so he just ended up not. So it was kind of fun. What's your favorite part of, uh, like the romance to, to write? Is it the, you know, the first meeting? Is it the first kiss tension? Is it the, you know, happily ever after? I actually have found that some of my favorite scenes I've written don't involve the hero and heroine. They're like these big group scenes or scenes with a secondary character. I mean, I like the ones with the heroine too. I, mean, I guess I'm I'm a conversationalist. I like the conversations, but um, I really have fun with a big, funny, almost farcical group scene, which I think people can who've read my books could have guessed that. I mean, there's yeah. you know the Paul Mall slash croquet scene in the Viscount who loved me. I've had um, uh, one of my favorite scenes I've written in recent years was. Um, the uh, the Plensworth poetry reading and the secrets of Sir Richard Kenworthy with like the little girl dressed as the unicorn and like the baby that's like licking the piano leg. And um, I just have fun with that stuff. I mean, it's just like, like if I, I don't usually laugh when I'm writing my own stuff, but if I do, I'm like, this is a good, this is a good sign if I'm giggling while I'm writing it. So I don't know. I, I really, I enjoy those things. I, I enjoy the, the big group scenes. That's my mark of a good book. I tell Bridget, if I laugh out loud when I'm reading it, I will remember this book. Like, because at this point, you once you start reading romance, it becomes like potato chips, mm-hmm. I think. You just devour mm-hmm. them. And you don't, you stop remembering the story. They all meld together, the, you know. And even at this point, it's so rare that I find a book that I remember the title of. I'm terrible with that too. Oh, I was just saying to make people feel better, like just so you know, authors, or I can only speak for myself, this author is never offended if you can't remember the title of one of my books. Just 
because I'm the same way. And like my own family is like, you know, the blue one, blue one. I'm like, okay, like the blue one is red now, you know, because I get new covers. I'm like, so are we talking old blue or new blue? And they're like, ah. <laughs> so yeah, my own parents can't remember the title. So don't worry about it. I actually have a question about you just said about the coverage real quick. What makes you or the publishers release a new cover? What's like the, oh, the reasoning behind it? I can answer that. I mean, somewhat. So I can tell you what it's not. First of all, really important. It's not looking to try to trick you into buying the book again. I promise you that is not what it is. Um, they are aware and, and they're sorry that like some people might pick it up and be like, ooh, a new one before they realize they haven't. But I mean, look at some of the old covers. They look kind of dated and old. I mean, you want a fresh look. So there's that. There's there's looking at a new old cover and being like, you know, this is not how we market this author anymore. Um, so like the, the clearest example of that would be like my very my earliest books. Um, and if you go to my website, www.juliaquinn.com, um, every book has its own page. Okay. And if you go to the pages for some of my older books, if you scroll down, you'll see the older book cover sort of sprinkled in. So you can see like, you know, Splendid, for example, now that's my very first book. And now it's like this dark purple and actually has been for like 15 years. That's a cover that actually is held up pretty nicely. But the earlier cover was like your classic clinch. And to everybody who bought that book with the original cover, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, I'm not anti-clinch, but like it's old enough now and I have a solid enough relationship with my publisher that I can say, I really think that painting was painted for a book set on the American Prairie and somehow it didn't make it. And then they recycled it for me, and like gave her a Regency dress because there is no place in England that looks like that landscape where, and yeah. like my Duke, really looks like he might be Native American. That was like a big romance thing at the time. So anyway, the, the thing is, is like I, re I had reached a point in my career where my books were not being marketed like that anymore. So they redid them. So that's part of it. Another part is it's just a way to get books back into the marketplace. And this was a bigger deal before eBooks. Before eBooks, it was, re and actually go back even farther. I'm really aging myself here. But before eBooks and before Amazon and stuff like that, it was actually not easy for people to get older books. You would go to the bookstore and they'd have the newest books. And if you were Catherine Coulter or Judith McNaught or Julie Garwood, they would have your backlist. And I know this for a fact because I worked at Barnes and Noble for several years and I was in charge of the you know our little romance section in North Haven, Connecticut. That's where I was. I would, you know, because they trusted me, I would try to get some backlist in. But in general, no. If you if you were not a best 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 selling author, they would only have your newest book. And most readers didn't realize, hey, we could actually order an older book. They they had no idea that you could special order something. So one way to get books back into the marketplace would be to re-release them with a new cover. And then so that would get them into the bookstores again, that would get them into Walmart and Target again. So it was it's just a way um, to sort of focus attention on a book again and get the book back into the marketplace. So that is those were the two main things. Um, and, and they really still are for the most part uh, in most circumstances. Now, for me right now, because I have like this big special event happening, which is kind of unique, which is this television show coming up or Netflix series. Um, that is causing, you know, some new repackaging of my books as well. Um, we're, you know, they now have, as they get redone, the books in the Bridgerton series have a little seal that says inspiration for the Netflix original series. Um, boy, you have to go through a lot of permissions to get that. Um, 
that was tough. You know, they, they reissued the Duke and I in a trade paperback format too. And for that, the main reason to do that was again, not to be like, oh, Julia Quinn fans, you need to drop another 1495 on another edition so much as to try to reach a new market who maybe never noticed it the first time around. Oh, that's the other thing. It's like, okay, so let's bring it out with a different style cover. Yeah, we're updating it. Yeah, we're trying to get more books into the market. But yeah, we're also trying to attract the reader who didn't see it the first times. Like maybe, you know, mm-hmm. now we're making it green. <laughs> maybe there's some people who have a subconscious thing against pink books. So now, you know, maybe they'll pick up this green one. I mean, that's how it is. This one was a little bit more, Mm -hmm. um, the trade paper version was marketed more towards historical fiction readers. That's the one with like the girl in the sort of whitish dress walking away towards the mansion in the background. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. cover. And it's it's very, you know, it's just, it's different. It looks a little bit less like a romance novel and a little bit more like historical fiction. I tend to think anybody who really is a historical fiction fan and doesn't like romance might be a little surprised when they get the book, but I mean, I also think there are a lot of people who don't know what a romance novel is, don't think they like romance novels, who might pick that up and be like, I really like this. Um, so again, it's trying to reach new audiences for the most part. And that's that's the main mm-hmm. thinking when they're redoing covers, those, uh, those three items. I hope that the Bridgertons is like astoundingly successful for a variety of reasons. One, me and Shani are already planning a watch along with our patrons. Um, and we're like super thrilled. We're going to do like a whole, you know, make an event out of it and just have it, have the most fun. But also just because we love, love stories and we love all of these romance novels and we want success so that more properties will start to get like people will start to realize like, oh, look at this huge built-in fan base that will come and consume this. And then we get to see all of our favorite, you know, like characters and worlds. I'm totally with you on that. Like I always tell people, okay, let's be honest. Mostly I'm super happy for myself. Nobody would believe me otherwise. But I'm also super happy for the genre because I really, really hope that it leads to more stuff for everyone. Um, That that Hollywood's going to realize they have this incredible wealth of source material that they have not tapped before. Um, I think that Hollywood had looked a little bit to contemporary romance, not much. And I think, you know, Outlander isn't truly a romance novel, but it's, it's romance adjacent. And, and I would even say the Venn diagram crosses a little bit that, you know, we like to claim her to a great degree, even though, you know, I, I'm the first to say it's not strictly a romance. Um, And I think, the Outlander, the success of that TV show really did pave the way. I also think it is no surprise that the person who actually might have looked to romance and, and as a visionary and be like, we can do this would be Shonda Rhimes because she's, she's brilliant. Mm-hmm. She's, I mean, she's brilliant. I, I, I don't even know what else to say. She's the best. And uh, I, I think, I, I, I think you're going to be really happy. I mean, I've read all the scripts. Um, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's going to be a little bit unlike anything we've seen before on television. I think I think it, in some ways it will be like I, I like I'm so emotional I can't get it across. Um, like think about like okay for me like when I'm watching Downton Abbey I love Downton Abbey I always wanted more romance didn't you? So that's kind of like where we're going. Um, And it's just the way they've done it is so brilliant. They, um, 
it's adapted so that um, in the first season, and when I say first season, it does not imply that we're going to have more seasons because there's nothing definite, but, but we are all hoping. Okay. So hoping that there are more seasons. Um, so yes, let's make it a big, big success. Yes. Big. But in the first, the first season does the story of the Duke and I does play out throughout the season, but there's more. That's the thing. So because it's a different medium, because it's television rather than a romance novel, there's room for some more stuff going on. And when I, my romance novels are always really tightly focused on the main characters. I don't do big secondary subplots. Some people do. Um, I don't. So this is this does give them more room to work. And there are some other subplots going on and, you know, laying the groundwork for hopefully other seasons. And I mean, it's a huge cast, but um, it definitely... You know, somebody who likes historical romance novels will watch this and recognize that it is a historical romance novel. But it will also have all the stuff people who don't think that they like romance novels or never really even thought about them will also love too. I mean, just it's it's gorgeous to watch. I know you've got to visit that. Like, what was it like stepping into your own story? I mean, you like, well, you like wrote this book, came up with the characters, came up with this big family. Like Mama Bridgerton was like one of my favorite things ever. I thought she was so funny. And you, you know, you like go on set and you, I mean, you step in, everyone's wearing the clothes, everyone's talking in the accent. Well, I mean, that's the first been. overwhelming thing is just to see it. When I was like, it's gorgeous to watch. Like I, they actually filmed me walking onto the set the first time to get my reaction. And I was just like, again, like I'm, I'm like making faces. Like you can see it on the podcast. You guys will just have to imagine it. Um, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, but, you know, but the thing that's most unbelievable, and I've said this before in other interviews and stuff is, is not so much that it's my world. Um, I mean, that's, that's crazy, but it's that, it's become so big and, and so many people are involved right now. I mean, you get there and you realize, uh, I mean, the, the woman who plays uh, Lady Danbury, when I met her, she was like, thank you for keeping us all employed. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> did I do this? Did I like provide work for all these people? I mean, really it was Shondaland and Netflix who provided the work, but um, there are hundreds and hundreds of people involved. I can't even, I mean, you get there and I mean, we think, okay, like there's the cast, you know, we, we think the writers, the crew, I mean, but there's so many people on crew. Like the, I can't even tell you the numbers of like mm-hmm. makeup people. Okay. And then like all the makeup people are going yeah. around and between every take, they're running up to their person who they're doing makeup, hair and makeup for. And they're like taking, you know, their iPhones and taking another photo. Last looks and touch up. Well, yeah. Because, well, so they have to, making sure the continuity. It's for continuity. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're constantly running up being like, Oh, mm-hmm. Luke, let me, you know, get in a picture of him or one of the Lukes or two Lukes um, to make sure everything's all set and, you know, so they're all those people. And then all the people who worked in the costume department, uh, when I vis- I visited the costume hall, hall warehouse, I don't know what you call it. And there were about, I think there were about six people working there when I visited, but they were pretty much done at that point. And they said there used to be about 30 altogether working on the costumes because all of the costumes were made for the show. I don't think anything was rented or if so, very, very little. Um, they, they made these costumes from scratch. And so you know, they're just incredible bolts of fabric. And then I could see the show, the stuff that was done. And there was the people who were still in the working, they were all like, we're team Daphne. You know, it's like all the people who da- do Daphne's 104 costumes. 
Oh, it was unbelievable. And so incredibly gorgeous. And so just the sheer scope of it, that all these people, okay. I wish everybody could see Shawnee's face right now. Yeah. Shawnee's losing her mind. You guys know, we've talked about it on the podcast before. When Sha- when I told Shawnee that Bridgerton's was coming to Netflix, she like lost her mind right now. She has her mouth open and it's silent screaming while, while Julia is well, describing. I, and I also studied historical uh, costuming as well. So when I hear like over a hundred costumes for like one character, like, you know, I'm shitting myself right now. It's like, like oh Johnny, my God. <laughs> all I can say is... You might need like a sedative when you watch. <laughs> Having seen that, going to have a tranquilizing yeah. part. On me. You, you might need, or maybe some adrenaline. She might just pass out and need to be revived. I can just, having seen these costumes and like, and also set was crazy. I mean, okay, so I visited twice. And the first time I visited, they were working on location. And so that was um, one day was in, you know, sort of like a beautiful old, English home. And the other day was uh, doing outdoor stuff and bath. But the second time I, I was on the built set, which is in a huge, huge, huge soundstage. It's so big. They can actually shoot two different crews at once. And, you know, I'm walking in and like seeing the Bridgerton house interiors and then seeing the Featherington's interiors. And it's just the, the guy who does the art direction for the whole show, who designed all this stuff, took me on a tour of um, the whole place. And it was just unbelievable. And I could even see there was one part, I can't give away what it was, but they were still building this one part. So I got to see sort of how something was coming to be. And I was just, it it was, yeah, it's, it's incredible the level of detail and work that has gone into this and just the, and, and getting back to my original point, the number of people involved and, and this whole cast and crew and, and builders and, and the guy who makes the lattes on the lot, um, who's lovely, by the way, there's a picture mm-hmm. of him on my Instagram. Um, all these people together have become this incredible family that I'm kind of not a part of because I live, you know, 5,000 miles away or however far it is to Seattle. And I'm kind of like this distant fairy godmother. So it's that's kind of the weird part. It's not bad. It's just weird that that this thing that's happening is like there's this whole like tight group and it's not me, but it's okay. Well, and, and the interesting thing too, is that you are the, I mean, I'll use God because it's an easy, easy allegory, but like you are the God of this world. So there, when you get on set, me and Johnny have been on a lot of sets, you do bond very quickly. You work a lot of long hours. You work aggressively on a project for maybe two weeks, a month, six months. And then like all your time is spent with those people. You don't have time to see your friends or family because you're always on set. You're always at work. And so you do become a family and like have all these inside jokes Mm -hmm. and just like so much community within that. Um, and then someone comes in like you, who's, you know, the person who created the world and everyone's like on their P's and Q's because you're Julia Quinn. You wrote this thing. Like no one wants to get fired because they upset you. No one wants to, I'm, and I don't mean it in like a way that you would ever do that. Cause you're obviously a lovely person, but they don't know that they don't know. Like they deal with people in Hollywood and people in Hollywood aren't always nice. And so they're kind of like, it must also be a little bit of separation between like, Oh, but you're employing us. Like it's your world. It's your just. You well, know, I think so. they all know I'm not the one employing them. Uh, we all know, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's Shondaland and Netflix. But I think there there was a little bit of that. And yeah. at the same time, I'm seeing these like actors who are 
like so beautiful and so charismatic so and have these followings. I'm just like, what if they don't think I'm cool? You know, it's the same thing. I have that too. It's like, oh, what if they think I'm a dork? You know, what was it like seeing like, I mean, obviously seeing the art and, and the sets was great, but did you get to watch from behind the monitors and like just see any of the dialogue or the emotions? Like I did get to see a few scenes. Um and it was it was it was amazing. The actors are so good. I can't even begin to tell you. And I, I've been on television sets before, not tons. I haven't worked on it really, but um one of my here we go, fun fact about me. My cousin played Elizabeth Walton on the Waltons, which Okay, Shawnee's nodding. I don't, you I guys don't, are I don't young. No, I watched okay, the, so Waltons, you know the Waltons. So, so, so yes. I'm old enough that like the Waltons were, I mean, they were huge when I was growing up. I mean, my my cousin was on the cover of People magazine. She was on the cover of TV Guide. You know, I went to Disneyland with her and had like the experience of what's it like to be with somebody who's famous. Me too. Thus, like I went to Disney, the Disneyland the same way you're talking Okay, right yeah, now. but I went with, like, with a famous yeah. person. It was like, it was crazy. Yeah, Shawnee's Shawnee's aunt is is famous. I'll let Shawnee reveal who it is. But uh, Shawnee grew up in a in a troupe of performers, and like her and her family were all sort of shepherded around to all these different yeah, when, tour when dates. When you're talking, I'm like, yes, so somebody else like grew up like me. So like my uh, my aunt is Donna <gasps> Summer, and my mom is like her back was her backup singer her whole life, and my dad was her manager for like oh, twenty man, which- years. So we. I wish you all could see my face. <laughs> we switched faces. Oh yeah. my gosh. Oh, your aunt is Donna Summer. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> and so we grew up like on tour all the time. And, and we went to Disney World, just like you're talking, where you're like escorted through the park. And like, you think it's a magical place because you don't realize people are actually waiting in line. <laughs> You know what? We, like, like suckers. I have to say, no, I, we did Disneyland like the normal way. We waited in lines that time. She did not get any special treatment, um, or at least not that time. But um, but we did. I did have that experience of being with people, someone who's being recognized all the time. And what's really amazing is she looks exactly the same. I mean, she's in her early 50s and looks exactly the same and gets recognized at least once or twice a day. Um, so that's fun. But That's anyway, awesome. I would I would visit the Walton set growing up. And so that was fun, like, and visit, you know. So I had been on sets before. Um, I knew certain things about sets. Like, I will tell people, like, you know, there's a lot of waiting around and being bored. There really yep. is. Even, yep. even when you're watching your own show. I mean, because they do, you know, we would see the same scene filmed 14 times because each time they would have the camera focused on a different person. But it was so interesting. You know, you're watching the scene for the 15th time. Only this time now they have the camera focused on... Eloise instead of Francesca. And you can see, because it's on this one character, you can see their reactions. So the times when, you know, the they're trying to get these reaction shots. So maybe she's not talking and she hasn't been talking for much, but you see her reacting to, to what somebody else is saying. And, you know, and probably this shot is not even going to be in there because they're going to be focusing on the person who's actually speaking. But, you, you know, you have to still do it. And when watching those reaction shots, you could see how good the actors were. It was really, you know, to me, that's where it's it's in the little moments. Um, I, I tend to think for like a lot of actors can do the big moments, but can you do the little moments? And they're they're all so good. I, I I'm in awe of the casting director. I just 
it's real. They're all amazing. So anyway, so I did get to see a fun scene with all of the Bridgerton ladies. And I saw a scene with Colin and Anthony. And I saw a scene at a dress shop. Oh, and I saw a really fun scene with, um, this is one of my favorite things with um, Penelope and Eloise. And they, their friendship is really central to the show too. And I love that the show is going to, you know, shine a light on females friendship too. And that, you know, it's not all about like competing for some guy that we can be friends. And, <laughs> um, and their, in fact, their friendship is so wonderful that like the writers were calling them Penelope. Oh, <laughs> they got a celebrity name. <laughs> they got a celebrity name even before they started filming. So the writers called them Penelope and they kind of ran with it. And uh, Nicola, who's just, she plays um, Penelope and she's so wonderful. Uh, Claudia, who plays Eloise, doesn't do any social media, but Nicola does a ton and they become such good friends. And apparently Claudia gave her for Christmas last year, a necklace that said Penelope's. And so she took a picture of it and showed it and it's so cute. And just the two of them together are just wonderful. I got, when I met them, I met them together and it was just so special to see. You could just see just, you know, people are always talking about chemistry between romantic couples. I mean, they've got the friend chemistry. They've got the BFF chemistry like you wouldn't believe. And so that was really fun too. Um, Speaking of meeting people, did you get to meet Julie Andrews? Well, so, you know, she does voiceover work. So I think, uh, I don't think anybody really got to meet her. Um, And I, I think the idea was that maybe people would meet her when people were doing press but with COVID, there there really hasn't been that type of press. So we didn't, we didn't get to meet right. Julie Andrews, um, which is sad. But the sadness pales next to the glee and happiness that she's involved. Very true. Very true. So I have a, a question for you about okay. casting. All right. So so we're very curious. We've read whatever articles we can get our hands mm-hmm. on about uh, the Bridgertons. Um, and a lot of them, uh, they talk about the diverse casting or the non-traditional casting of um, of the Bridgertons. And some people like to call it colorblind casting of the Bridgertons. Um, and can you just tell us a little bit more about kind of like how that went about or if you know anything about their decision to do that, how you feel about it, like all those things. Yeah. So y- you mentioned, and I think this is an important thing, you mentioned that some people call it colorblind casting. We don't. And by we, I mean, Shonda Land and the creators. Um, I, I'm the first say I did. I had nothing to do with the casting, um, but I love it. I think it's amazing. I think they did such an amazing job finding the best actors for the role. So I just, I want to say that flat out, but uh, I wish I could take credit for it, but I, I don't. Um, but, you know, when people say colorblind casting, and I realize most people who do say that, you know, they don't mean any harm or they don't mean anything bad. It's just, I think we don't necessarily have a good word for what type of, another word. So people use what they they think. And, but colorblind implies that no thought was given to color. And that's not what happened at all. They were actually very deliberate in how they did this. And, um, but it is also important to remember, like, it's not, the show isn't a history lesson. I mean, the show is for modern audiences featuring modern themes and, and characters. And so the, the creators wanted to they sort of reimagine the world. And they, they started kind of with the idea that many, many history uh, historians think that Queen Charlotte, who was queen at the time, was of mixed race. Um, it was never acknowledged, but uh, it is believed that she very well may have been. And so the idea kind of was like, well, what if, what if that was an accepted fact? And that this isn't something necessarily that is like, 
spoken of explicitly in the show, but it's just sort of like, okay, what if, what if that was an expected, uh, accepted fact? And what if she then used her position to raise more people of color and, and in this particular case, all different colors. I mean, you'll see when you look at the show, it's incredibly diverse, not just people of, of say African heritage, but I mean, there's people of Asian heritage and South Asian heritage and um, all, it's really wonderful to see. What if she used her position to raise more people of color to prominent positions and that just became normal? And so, um, so that's kind of where they went with it. And um, yeah, it's just, it ended up making the world seem a little bit more like what we see now. And, you know, when I visited the set and I would see, um, especially if you could see a scene where they've got a lot of the extras in there, because that's, um, you know, there are a number of very, very prominent characters who are people of color. Um, but also uh, the, where you really start to see the diversity is just when they populate the entire background as well. And um, it just, it feels normal and it's just really nice. Well, we think it's, we think it's great because Shawnee is always saying like, why don't you just put a Brown person in this? Like, who cares? This is, this is fiction. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't like, yeah, you're like, not writing a history lesson. Like she just always wants well, more. Well, because like, you know, as I was a young kid reading historicals and obviously I'm not seeing anybody who is remotely mm-hmm. resembles me in, in the pages, um, unless they are like a servant or they're always, um, by it's, they're biracial, um, because that's really the only way people figured out how to put Brown people into, into England, mm-hmm. you know, Regency and, you know, at that time. Um, and so like, for me, when I saw Much Ado About Nothing with Denzel and Keanu, um, I was like, this, I love this casting. They were brothers. Yeah, Denzel and Keanu were brothers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it didn't matter to me because like in a in a book, in a story, whatever rules you give me of the world, like I accept mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. right? I have, I have this kind of rule where whatever rule an author gives me, I will accept those rules, but they must also follow their own rules. Okay. That's, that's the key okay. too. I was just saying, this isn't quite like much to do about nothing. I mean, you, you don't have situations where Denzel and Keanu would be, necessarily brothers, but, um, like for example, you know, Reggae Jean Page plays the Duke of Hastings and I believe his background, he is a Zimbabwean British actor. Um, I believe he is biracial. Um, I'm not sure which of his parents is black and which one's white, but I mean, he certainly identifies as a black man. Um, and his parents in the show are ca- black actors are cast. And so they, they do sort of keep it that way rather than, you know, suddenly having like, you know, all the Bridgerton brothers look like they could be related. So they, they kept it like that, but they made a very diverse world. Well, I'm very excited for this. I'm very excited We're to very see excited. how they did it, the world, everything. Yeah. It's for me, like, you know, uh, every step this way, whether people, because um, Sometimes people have feelings about colorblind casting or uh, traditional casting or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. In general, brown people don't like the word colorblind, so it's not really one that we use on a regular basis. I only use it uh, to kind of express what the articles I've mm-hmm. been reading. Um, but the uh, every step towards getting more people of color on screen <laughs> to me is an is an amazing step. Like um, when Disney did the Princess and the Frog, 
so many people had a problem with it, me included. But most of us were like, well, it's a one more step in the right direction. Like, you know, it's like just one more step. You know, it wasn't like <laughs> none of us found it to be good. Um, I'm speaking for most of the people in, that I know. Um, but at least there was like, you're just like, oh, you didn't feel fully invisible mm-hmm. um, or whatnot. Uh, you, I won't say we felt fully seen, but <laughs> we didn't feel fully invisible. So I'm just very excited for this because like it's, you know, it's many, many years, many, many moments of childhood and adolescence and things like in the making to this point, you know? Um, and it gives me hope that like, if I ever have a kid that, oh, like, oh my gosh, I'll have so many more options for them. Even just like children's programming and stuff like that. There's so many more options. Um, yeah. So yes, this is, this is pretty As amazing. someone who considers herself an ally, um, I'm just so grateful for it because I feel that so Chris Van Dusen is the creator of the show. He we works with Shondaland. He's the showrunner. But Chris and everybody at Shondaland has been able to take my world and expand it in a way that I personally was not able to do because, you know, I'm one person and I don't feel I have the life experience and knowledge to have written all on my own, what they've managed to do with a writer's room and a big group. Um, You know, people have said to me, like, you know, sometimes, and some of these questions come very earnest and and nice. And some of them come as people trying to like, gotcha moment me and be like, well, how come you haven't written characters of color? Or are you going to write characters of color? And I, my answer to that usually is, you know, I, at this point, I don't know that I could do a good job. And I think if I tried, and didn't do a good job, that would be worse than not trying. That could be actively harmful and or exploitative in some way. And I I don't want to do that. Um, But because a television show is such, it's such a collaborative thing and there's so many people involved, it's not just me and my knowledge and my life experiences. It's all the actors, it's all the writers, it's all the art directors, it's everybody. There's hundreds of people coming in and it's all what they know and what they can bring to it. And so it's able to expand this world in a way that I, on my own, could not. And so I'm so grateful to have sort of handed this over to this marvelous, amazing group of people who can then take this and make it more. I actually think it's really great. I think a lot of creators, uh, some who are very small that we've worked with, some who are very large and we read about, uh, have a real tendency to grip so tight on their, on their idea of what the, whatever they created should be or should look like, or the dialogue. I think it's so great that you've embraced that like TV Mm -hmm. is its own medium and, that these people are now sort of in charge of the creative and they're taking, you know, the, the idea of the world, the Bridgertons as a family, who each character should be, but, but that they're adding subplots, they're adding dialogue, they're adding, they're adding so much like um, modern sort of sentiments into a historical setting. Um, I think that's a real credit to you because we have both worked with a lot of people where they would not be able to, graciously like be so excited about something that isn't exactly oh my what gosh. they imagine. Oh my gosh. I, sorry. I can see that Johnny has a comment, but I got to jump in here. No, no, no. no, no okay. Okay. So, um, well, the one thing I did want to say is like, I do think the books as written did have a lot of modern sensibilities to begin with. And that may have been part of what attracted 
them to adapt them because they did seem like they'd be more adaptable to, to what they wanted to do. But um, so, you know, I've, people have asked me a lot about this and one of the very first things they ask you, or at least they ask me when talking about optioning work is, are you willing to relinquish creative control? And my reaction was like, take it, do what you want. Um, I mean, which in part was, uh, to be honest, I just, I didn't want to jeopardize the deal, but it was also, I'm not going to be the person to tell Shonda Rhimes how to make television. Um, and, and, and part of the reason I could be like, take it, do what you want is because I, the person who was asking, I had such incredible trust in, um, I, I've, I've been a fan of hers for years. And I just, I knew that this was somebody who could take this and do something amazing with. And so I may not have been quite so eager to, you know, hurl my property in her direction if, if it had been someone else. But um, I really did have faith that they they would. And I, I do want to reassure readers. I mean, there are changes, but I, I feel that the characters have remained utterly true to who I created. Um, the, the main storylines of the Duke and I shine through. And it's fascinating, you know, from a writer's standpoint, looking at how they did this, it is absolutely fascinating to see that they could take something change so many words. I mean, I, I'm reading it being like, did I write any of these words? I don't know. Um, Cause it's been so long since I've read the book. I, I don't generally reread my books um, to take something without doing, without having very, very few word for word sections and still have it be so true to it. So it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And um, I, I think that it's a, you know, somebody should teach a masterclass on adapting you know, a book, because this is just brilliant how they did it. It's absolutely brilliant. And when I read the very first script to see how you could see how they were setting it up, how they were framing it, how they were using Lady Whistledown as a device, all these different things, how, you know, the introduction of Queen Charlotte, she wasn't in the books, but she is brilliant. She's fabulous. And so all the things that they did, I, I'm looking at it thinking, this is absolutely the right way to do this. And I would never have thought of it. I, the one thing I hope, because obviously your book was great and we really liked it. There's a lot of amazing moments, but the one I'm really excited to see on screen is their meet cute. When she like, is like, oh, you were trying to be so handsome and charming. I'm sure it would have worked <laughs> on someone else. I'm excited for, for that dynamic of like her just, her just being like, oh, you think that you're just such a rogue. That's so nice for you. That's so nice. I'm not that kind of, I'm not going to be sweet, but that's nice. For you. I'm excited that the, the feeling of the characters is going to. It definitely through. does. And they definitely, the other thing they definitely capture, which I'm so excited about, um, are those family moments, the dynamic of having families who tease each other and bicker. And yeah, so that, I think that for me is the, the draw of your books because I mean, I read a lot of historical books, but um, because I come from a big family, that the, the banter between them is something I can really relate to. Like mm-hmm. uh, anybody looking in at me and my siblings would think that we were arguing all the time because we like rag on each other. We joke on each other. The, the whole thing is to like do the best joke, like hit it the best. It doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, but anybody who just like kind of like willingly walks in to our group we'll get ragged on right away. And they're like, Whoa, what's, what's happening with, you know, so the dynamic in the family to me is such a big draw. 
um, to the stories. You have that ro- whatever the romance is, but then you have all these people with the commentary like <laughs> coming at it, um, which I just think is like a warm, you get like the warm cuddle feels when you're reading your books. I think you'll like the family. I got to meet most of them. I didn't, I didn't get to meet the boy who plays Gregory. He was not on set. And then I didn't meet um, the woman who plays Francesca, although I saw her filming scene and somehow I never managed to connect with her, but I did meet all the rest of the Bridgertons and they're just, they're wonderful. They're just, they're so nice. And um, uh, Luke, the so both Benedict and Colin are played by guys named Luke. So Luke Newton who plays Colin was, he was just so funny. He's like, it took them 90 minutes to make my hair this fluffy. Um, he, he has very <laughs> fluffy Regency hair. Um <laughs> And uh, they're just, yeah, they just, they all seem to get along so well. And from everything that everybody I've talked to and everything I've been able to tell, it was just, you know, a lovely set experience for everyone. Everybody really actually liked each other. Like there weren't any divas or egos and. um, Well, you know, you know, Shonda already had that problem with divas and egos and she don't play. If you don't, if your energy does not match the energy of her set, you are not going to be on it. Well, that's your other, you know, she's not running the set. Mm-hmm. She's she she's the other fairy godmother from afar. It was Chris who was there for, yeah. for most of it. Um, so I don't know. Nice. But yeah, I think I, I know that my sense was that everybody there was also just incredibly thrilled and honored to be working on a Shondaland project. Um, I mean, I think yeah. the, the Shondaland brand comes with, um, just such a, th- there's such meaning behind it now as being like, you know, if you're with this, you're in this family now, you are, you know, it's, it's, well, quality, also it's going to be quality kind, television. Kind. And the people fun. who work there are they're yeah. inclusive and they're kind and they're respectful and they, they're smart. And it's just, it's, it's such a great group of people. It's just like, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can't speak highly enough about them. I, I'm curious, did you, the Bridgertons, like how much of that did you have mapped out in your mind before you even started like book one? Almost nothing. <laughs> so you made it up as yeah, you Yeah, a lot of it. I really did. Holy shit. Very <laughs> poor planning on my part. Um, yeah, it was. Well, it all worked well, you out. Figured it it all out. Worked out. <laughs> if you're ever going to write an eight book series, do a little more planning at the beginning. Um, <laughs> how did you, how did you build your, fa- your fan base? Because you have like such a, you know, obviously you started out like most authors and you published your first book and then your second one, but how did you, you know, sort of build this? You have like 175,000 Facebook fans and you have all these people are so invested in your you know, I, books. I always tell people like I did it the old fashioned way, one, one book at a time. And, you know, it's really funny. I, I, I talk to you and I look at newer authors now and it's so different now. I mean, when I started publishing, there were no eBooks. I actually, I actually published the first two original eBooks uh, that HarperCollins ever had, which were two of the Bridgerton second epilogues. And as a matter of fact, it was, I used to have, you know, FAQs on my website. What is an eBook? How do I read it? Do I have to print it out? I mean, because these were all questions people had when I, when the first ones came out. But so I started out in the old market just, you know, where your books are going into bookstores, but even more of them are going into grocery stores. And it was really just one book at a time, trying to publish a quality book and hope that with, you know, you know, that with each book, you're going to lose some people because it's not going to be for everybody. And then hope that the next book will bring more in, you know, offset and like to keep 
growing slowly. And, um, you know, I talked to some, some nowadays, I think writers are under such pressure to hit a bestseller list at some point or to get, a, you know, an endorsement quote for their very first book. And, you know, I'll tell people like, I didn't get an endorsement quote until my sixth book from anyone. Like I had no endorsement quotes. I didn't hit a bestseller list until my seventh book. And that was like, you know, not even like in the tops of anything, you know, all these people, you know, and so I think people think it was much faster than it was. It really wasn't. It was, it was slow and steady, but I think the advantage to slow and steady is that your fans, they're, they're dependable fans. And so like, if you write one book that they don't like, they're not going to drop you because they're just like, okay, well, I like her other stuff. So you, whereas some people, you know, with the people who come out of the gate with, you know, this big, huge success, um, their fans aren't necessarily as um, invested. They might not stay for the next one. So I, I think it's really that slow and steady thing that, that did it. And then, you know, in terms of people who follow me or with me on social media, um, that's also just kind of like slow building of them all. I only, I don't do Twitter. I tried it briefly and it just wasn't for me and I didn't feel authentic. So I think the thing is to find ways to reach out to fans that feel authentic. And so I, I write all my own stuff in social media. I do it myself. I don't have people doing it. And I think that readers feel that they, they, and they like to, because of that, I think they stay and they like it. So I do Facebook and I do Instagram. And I would say occasionally I'll post something on both you know, if it's something really exciting, it goes on both, but it's not always the same stuff because it's again, different mediums. And, uh, I think just kind of be yourself and be somebody that they want to interact with and, um, and stick with. And it's, and it's a balance. It's like, how do I show who I am and be friendly and happy without necessarily revealing my personal life, which I don't really want to do. And I think I found a balance. So I think so. I do have a personal question because you do dedicate all of your books mm-hmm. to your husband, Paul. Paul. Um, one thing that we do on the podcast all the time is that we give advice based on whatever book we're reading. Sometimes it's, Hey, don't do that. That's a red flag. Okay. You need to run in the other direction in real life. This is just fiction. And sometimes it's like, Oh, that's such a sweet sentiment. Like if you, you know, if the person's showing up for you and they're doing all these actions, like believe them mm-hmm. and they love you sort of thing. Um, since you sort of have your own happily mm-hmm. ever after, um, is there something that you feel like has been sort of instrumental in that longevity and that, that falling in love and um, staying in so, love? Yeah. So pe- actually my readers have been seeing a little more of Paul lately than, than we have in the past because he's been in the news. Um, he actually, so for people who don't know about my husband, he is a special, he's a physician specializing in infectious diseases. Um so this is kind of his moment. We're in a pandemic. He is now um, head of COVID infection control at the University of Washington Medical Center, which is uh, kind of a major wow. hospital serving a, really a five-state area. Um, so he's pretty busy. <laughs> um, but he he's given, he counted, he just did his 100th interview since the pandemic began, um, both you know on camera and in print. And I, I think what's happened like for a lot of, reporters is that when you find a doctor who can actually speak to a camera and complete sentences and, and be personal about it, they, they, they latch onto him. So we kind of joke, like there's this one local reporter, her name is Tammy Mutasa. We love Tammy. And he, Tammy like found him early on and was like always calling him. So we're like, Oh, you're off with Tammy again. And, um, 
he did an interview for another local news place. We're like, you're cheating on Tammy. What is Tammy going to think? But uh, so he's done a lot of these. So I've actually posted it's, I haven't done it on Instagram so much because it's it's a lot harder. I think to post links on it, I find it harder, but over on Facebook, I've been posting some links to some of his interviews, like like early on the one where he demonstrated how to properly wash your hands, (laughs) which is important. And I actually just posted one recently where he just talked about, you know, things you can do to keep safe. Um, and we always do get like some of the trolls come out, you know, this one dude got on there and called him a lying sack of, you know what? And I'm like, really? So I banned him. But after I banned him, I was, <laughs> so it was really funny. Somebody got on there and was like, excuse me, but you know, if I'm looking for advice on infectious disease, I'm going to go with the specialist at University of Washington over the retired drywall inspector. <laughs> I was just like, I did call her out later. I'm like, thank you to whoever pointed that out. Um, but anyway, because of that, Paul has actually like appeared a little bit more um, in some, in some stuff. Um, so the readers have gotten to know him a little better. And in fact, I, I just recently joined a zoom with um, it was for faded mates, you know, the other part that other podcast, mm-hmm. but they were, they're doing this thing called mm-hmm. faded states where they're phone banking for democratic causes. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I wanted to offer some support, um, not to get too political, but I think anybody who actually tries to figure out where I feel has figured it out, but, um, <laughs> you can get political. We have talked about it. We, we don't, we try to stay out of it on the podcast only because everything is so heavy. We want people to come here and just laugh right. and like have so much fun and have this be a little escapism for them. You can say what you want. You can say whatever you want. People know that we are voting for Biden and Kamala. I had offered for this particular phone bank. I, um, I'm sending autograph books to every woman. Well, every, every person, I shouldn't say every woman, it was mostly women, but, but for every person who joined the phone bank last week, I'm sending them an autograph book as a thank you. And so I joined a little Zoom chat um, to say hi to them and to tell them a little bit about what, what I'm doing uh, for the election and stuff like that, because I'm also doing a lot of work. Um, and Paul happened to be home. So he came on the Zoom with me too and answered some of their questions about COVID, which was really fun. So they all got to really meet him. And it was kind of charming because after he left, they're like, wow, he's so good at that. It's like, yeah, he wins like teacher of the year award at the medical school all the time. And then somebody's like, he should narrate audiobooks. <laughs> but um, but to answer your question about longevity, we met really young. I'm, I was 18. I met him my, the second day of freshman week in college. He was a junior, so you know Aww. he kind of swooped in. Um, we didn't start dating till October, which I thought was really holding out so long. But um, <laughs> no, <laughs> if I could write my own story, I would have been older when I met him, so I could have experienced certain things on my own. But it, like, I wasn't gonna throw him back. Um, and I, but I think the reason you know that it has worked is that we are all we are both very much our own people. And what we need each other for, you know, happiness and love and all this stuff, we don't need each other to exist. Um, It's not, I I, I find that's almost, I mean, to me, that's almost unhealthy. And we are both fully formed people with our own um, careers. Um, Not that, you know, I I don't, you know, I I don't want to like shame, put down stay-at-home parents at all, because to me, that's a career too. Um, but we, we have Mm -hmm. our own, each of us has our own focus and our own careers and our own ways of growing and validating ourselves and being who we are that 
doesn't depend on the other person. And so we can, while we're better together, we can stand independently just fine. And I think that is part of the reason why it's lasted that long. And, and we're both so proud of the other person for the things that he slash Lee has done on her own. I mean, especially now, um, you know, I've been doing like usually weekly Instagrams during the pandemic where I chat with another author and I have bragged about him so much, you know, and, and all that he's doing right now in, in, you know, to save everyone and to be so wonderful during this time of crisis. And he's so wonderful, like bragging about me too. You know, it's just, he sent me a, um, an email that one of the medical students, this was a few years ago, medical students sent him an email. It's just, it was really cute. She's like, I did not realize who your wife was. <laughs> and she's like, I thought you were kind of amazing to begin with, but oh my God, now you are the bomb. And, you know, and it's just like, he takes no offense, you know? And so he's just, he's so proud too. And um, yeah, we're just, we're both, I think that's it. I think it's just learning, you know, being in a relationship where you are better together, but fully independent, if that makes sense. All right. Well, our last question, because I know we have to wrap up because you have given us so much of your generous time. Um, what question do you wish that people would ask you about, about your books? What do you want to gush about? That's a great question. I don't, I don't think I have, I think, I, I mean, I think so much of my mental excitement and energy right now is focused on the show, especially because it's finally coming so soon that I feel like people are asking me about what I want to gush about right now. Um, well, you heard it here, guys. We're the best interviewers in the history of interviewing. And we have covered all the things that Julie Quinn wanted to talk about. So now I'm going to float on a cloud for the rest of the day. And we are going to sign off. Shani is pantomiming her excited face hands. And, and uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for being here. Seriously, this was a real treat. You guys, how fun was that interview with Julia Quinn? Don't forget the rest of it is on patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance. You guys, if you just go to patreon.com and search for our name, you will not find us. We are an explicit content podcast, as maybe you have guessed. So make sure you type in patreon.com forward slash romance at a glance to find us. We have all kinds of awesome perks in addition to hearing cool extra interviews, BTS, and all of that goodness. You guys, that wraps it up for season four. What a fun historical ride that we have been on. You guys, make sure that you go back. If you're new to us here today, hello, welcome. Nice to have you. And if you're one of our old hats, hey, 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 what up, friends? We are about to dip deep into a holiday mashup of steamy, steamy goodness. So make sure you head to romanceatglance.com forward slash upcoming dash books or just romanceatglance.com. Scroll down, find the calendar, see what books are on our docket coming up. We've got some amazing author interviews. We've got some amazing reviews coming up. Seriously, this is gonna be such a fun fall and winter for us. I made sure to pick all of the steamy goodness. Until then, may your books be your lover and your hand your best friend. Bye everyone.